Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 12 of They Walk Among Us a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. Scotland in the 1960s saw two murders, with each case centred around a complex love triangle. Even though the motives and methods of these crimes were strikingly similar, the outcome was very different. Aberdeen, 1958. Thomas Guyan and his wife Margaret had only been married for one year when they moved to a flat owned by Margaret's grandmother at 14 Jackson Terrace. The birth of their first son followed in September of that year and Margaret gave birth to a second boy three years later in February 1961. Thomas was a merchant seaman and worked away from home for weeks, sometimes months at a time. The timings of the birth of their second son meant that the child could not have been his, as he was away at sea during the period of conception. This caused some friction between the couple, and Margaret sought legal advice as she wanted to divorce Thomas, but he refused. Although unhappy, she decided her best option for the time being was to stay in the marriage. In late 1961, she started a job at John R. Stevens Fish Curers, and while working there, she struck up a friendship with a tall, fair-haired 20-year-old colleague called Henry John Burnett. Their relationship progressed fast, and within a few months, Margaret left the property she shared with Thomas, and in May moved into Henry's parents' home, while they looked for permanent accommodation. Initially, Margaret had taken both of her children with her, 
but her grandmother visited and insisted that Margaret's first son, fathered by Thomas, live with her. Both Margaret and Henry moved into a sublet property with Margaret's youngest son, at number 40 Skeen Terrace. Margaret wasn't aware how possessive and unstable Henry was before she moved in with him. In the past, he had attempted suicide by swallowing a fistful of sleeping pills following a broken romance. He was extremely paranoid he was going to lose Margaret the same way her estranged husband did, so would often lock the door behind him when he went out, trapping Margaret in the house. On May 31st, on his way out of the home, Henry forgot to lock the door and Margaret was able to leave the property and make her way into town. Coincidentally, while there she bumped into her husband Thomas. Thomas asked Margaret to return home as he wanted them to try and work on their marriage. Margaret was unhappy in a new relationship with the ever more erratic Henry, so thought Thomas was the better option. She returned to the house she shared with Henry that day at 4pm and intended to collect her son and their belongings. Henry's actions had been making her feel uneasy, so she took a friend, Georgina Katana, to accompany her for moral support. She entered the house, leaving Georgina waiting for her outside. Georgina could hear Henry screaming, Margaret, Margaret, you're not going to leave me. As Margaret packed her things, Henry shouted to Georgina outside, Is Margaret going back to her husband? She replied, I don't know, but she's not getting a divorce. As Georgina was locked outside of the property, she could do nothing more than watch the events unfold through the letterbox. Henry grabbed Margaret and would not let her leave. Georgina watched on, shouting at Henry to let her friend go. Henry pulled a knife and held it to Margaret's throat. In the commotion, Henry was persuaded to let Margaret go, and after a couple of minutes, he unlocked the door then fled down the street. Despite a minor injury to her neck, Margaret and her son were safe, but looked visibly shaken. She gathered her things and returned with Georgina to her marital home. Later that day, she was watching the television with her son, husband and grandmother when she heard Georgina shouting at someone, you can't come in here, after her friend answered the front door. Little did they know, the same time they were moving back to the flat, Henry had fled to his brother's house. There he prized open the gun cabinet and stole his brother's shotgun along with a number of cartridges. He then hopped on the bus heading for Margaret and Thomas's flat at Jackson Terrace. Once there he barged into the flat where the unsuspecting family were watching television. Thomas Guyan jumped to his feet but Henry raised the gun and at point blank range shot him in the head killing him instantly. The force of the blast knocked Margaret's grandmother off her feet but she was not seriously hurt. Margaret was frozen in position on the sofa with her son on her lap when Henry pointed the shotgun at her. Threatening to kill everyone unless she complied, Henry forced Margaret out of the flat as he calmly reloaded the shotgun, leaving her infant son on the sofa. As the two made their way down a flight of stairs, they were confronted by one of Margaret's neighbours who was told by Henry to get out of the way. As soon as Henry and his hostage left the building, the 13-year-old neighbour notified the police of the situation. Still armed with a shotgun and holding Margaret against her will, Henry hijacked a car at a petrol station on the main route out of Aberdeen. He said to the owner of the vehicle who was filling up the car with petrol, Is this your car, pal? I'll take it now. 
the owner tried to stop him by attempting to let the tyres down, but Henry threatened him, so the owner backed off. Henry sped off down the motorway in the newly stolen car with Margaret inside. The owner notified the police who were now in hot pursuit and a number of roadblocks were set up. During the chase, Henry took the opportunity to propose to Margaret and in a strange turn of events, she accepted. The chase came to an end without incident 15 miles later near Elon. On their way back to Aberdeen, Henry started to cry and asked Margaret if she would stand by him and she said yes. When questioned by detectives, Henry said, I gave him both barrels, he must be dead. The trial for the murder of Thomas Guyane was held at the High Court of Aberdeen on July 23, 1963. Henry, dressed in a dark suit, was calm and showed little sign of emotion as a charge of murder and two counts of assault were read aloud. Throughout the trial, countless onlookers waited outside from the early hours before the court was in session. They wanted to be the first to hear the day's events tried before Mr Justice Wheatley. As Henry had used a gun, it was a capital murder charge and stealing the weapon gave clear evidence of premeditation. Henry's sister-in-law, Mrs Edith Burnett, gave witness that Henry had called at her home in Bridge of Don and stolen her husband's shotgun. Georgina Katana also gave evidence about the shooting itself. Henry Burnett had pushed past her at the property on Jackson Terrace. She heard him say, I've got you. She then witnessed him firing the gun into Thomas Guyan's face. The court also heard testimony from John Irvine, the man who had his car stolen. He explained as he was filling his vehicle with petrol, Henry Burnett said he was taking the car. When John Irvine tried to hinder Henry's attempts, Henry shouted, I've killed once and I'll kill again. The arresting officers heard the report of a stolen car around 6pm and saw it two miles north of Elon and gave chase. After slowing down, the driver gave a hand signal that he was about to pull over. PC Reaper said Henry Burnett got out with his hands raised exclaiming, I'm the man you want. They searched the car and discovered a shotgun on the back seat. Henry Burnett's mother Matilda took to the stand on behalf of her son. Henry attempted to stand up but was made to sit back down again before shouting, Take her out, take her out. She broke down in tears before trying to comfort Henry from the dock, telling him, Henry, it's okay, my loon. I'm okay. The court heard Henry was the fourth in a family of seven children. He had a relatively normal childhood until, his mother explained, he had been injured in a road traffic accident when he was 12. Afterwards, he was awkward and prone to bouts of aggression. He played truant from school and in one incident threatened his sisters with a knife. She also spoke about the time Henry tried to commit suicide in 1961. His girlfriend had ended their relationship. He was beside himself and had taken an overdose of sleeping tablets. He was not like other members of the family, said Matilda. If anything didn't suit him, he lost his head altogether. On these occasions, he turned dead white and his eyes were just staring. To a certain extent, I was frightened of him. Medical evidence bolstered his claim. A doctor informed the court that Henry had signed himself into King Seat Psychiatric Hospital 
after he attempted to take his own life. The doctor stated, My diagnosis then was that he was a psychopath. I would have considered him certifiable and would have certified him, but he agreed to go to hospital as a voluntary patient. Henry was free to discharge himself and did so after three days against doctor's advice. The court then heard from another doctor who agreed with the first that Henry was insane at the time of the murder. Henry Burnett claimed diminished responsibility. The jury of 10 men and 5 women took just 25 minutes to find him guilty. Lord Wheatley finished by donning his black cap and handing down the sentence. Henry Burnett, in respect of the verdict of murder just received, the sentence of the court is that you be taken from this place to the prison of Craig Inches, therein to be detained until the 15th day of August, and upon that day within the said prison of Craig Inches, between the hours of 8 and 10 o'clock for noon, you suffer death by hanging, which is pronounced for doom. Henry John Burnett was taken back to his holding cell and then driven to the refurbished condemned block at Craig Inch's prison. Margaret Guyan said after the trial, I can't say why, but I know I still love him. She added, we fell in love. On the day of the murder, my husband and I were together again, but I knew it would be the same old story and we would part. I am sorry Tommy had to die, but I never knew it would end this way. She continued to speak of a love for Henry, whom she called Harry. I said I would marry him before, and I still stand by him. My heart is with Harry. People can talk, but I still love Harry. The Burnets, and astonishingly Thomas Guyan's family, petitioned the courts for clemency. Thomas's mother, Jeannie Guyan, spoke to reporters and stated, I can find it in my heart to forgive Henry Burnett. It's his mother I feel sorry for. I know what she must be going through. I sent my son John along to see the Burnets today. I am backing the petition. I don't think Henry Burnett should hang. John Guyan also spoke to the press and said, I went to see the Burnets today. They are getting up a petition and we are going along with it. I don't think Burnett should hang. There is obviously something wrong with him. During the period of his incarceration, Henry continued to keep in contact with Margaret. He wrote a letter to her saying, Well, my darling, you will be wondering why I did not kill you up in Skeen Terrace. Well, it was because I loved you. I could easily have done it if I had wanted to, but what they were saying in court was a heap of rubbish about me being insane even at the time. I knew exactly what I was doing. Margaret was permitted to spend half an hour with Henry on the day before he was hanged. He described the newly built condemned suite was like being at the Ritz. He would be the only person ever to occupy it. Two hundred people gathered outside the prison with many protesting the death penalty. A man walked back and forth with a large cardboard sign on his chest marked with the words Abolish Legal Murder. Staff on the front gates were doubled as protesters screamed murderers through the bars. Executioner Harry Allen and his assistant Samuel Plant carried out the execution wearing black bow ties as a mark of respect. Harry Allen was well known for his precise work taking into consideration the condemned man's height, weight and age to ensure a quick death. 
They also carried out the hanging of Robert McLaddery, the last execution in Northern Ireland two years before. A little over a year after he'd met Margaret Guyane and three months after he'd murdered Thomas Guyane, Henry John Burnett was hanged at 8am August 15th, 1963. His death was witnessed by the prison governor, a nurse, a chaplain, two prison guards and two other members of staff. He was the last man hanged in Scotland before Westminster suspended the death penalty two years later and it was finally abolished in 1969. Henry John Burnett was buried on the grounds of Craig Inch's prison. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safer families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. Maxwell Robert Garvey lived with his wife Sheila at West Carnbeg Farm in Scotland 
along with his three children, Wendy, Angela and their youngest, Lloyd. The couple had married in 1955 when Sheila was just 18. She'd left school three years earlier to work in a telephone exchange, but she quickly tired of the role and got a job at the Royal Estate of Balmoral as one of the domestic staff. She saw Balmoral as her home. She lived on the ground since she was 12 years old as her father was employed at the estate mansion. Sheila met Maxwell in January 1953 when they both attended a dance at the village hall. It was Lady's choice to pick a dance partner and Sheila spotted someone she hadn't seen at the dance before, Maxwell Garvey. They began dating and almost two years on, at Christmas in 1954, Max proposed and in June of the following year they were married. They moved into a large farmhouse with an abundance of land at West Carnbeg. Max had inherited the property from his father, who was a wealthy farmer, and now in turn so was Max, after taking on the family business. Sheila found a new home quite overwhelming. At such a young age, it seemed a lot to take on, being a new wife in a large, isolated home. Sheila was soon pregnant and gave birth to her eldest daughter, Wendy, about a year after the couple had moved to the farm. Less than a year later, the pair had a second daughter, Angela, and after seven years, their youngest child, Lloyd, was born. Both Sheila and Max were active within the local upper-class farming community. Max was a member of the Scottish National Party, and they both attended meetings regularly. He also established Fordoon Flying Club after buying a light two-seater plane that he loved flying. From the outside in, their life looked idyllic. They would take expensive holidays and the attractive couple would always be seen in expensive clothes. Between his responsibilities of running a business and raising his children, Max began to develop a fascination with pornography as this was before the days you could wander into a corner shop and pluck a magazine from the top shelf or simply browse the adult entertainment on the internet, Max would have to order the material from London and have it sent via post. Sheila would retrieve the mail and knew exactly what was inside. Max didn't hide it. She also knew those magazines would always get open first while the farming publications remained sealed. Sheila confided in friends that Max was obsessed with sex and demanded, as Sheila put it, unnatural sex with her. Sheila fell into a depression and sought help from a psychiatrist, but the couple's home life continued to decline. Max found a new interest in nudism after discovering this new hobby on a family holiday in France. Sheila's frustration hit boiling point in 1964 after Max persuaded his wife to go to a rundown nudist club in Edinburgh. Max yearned for something more and broke the news to his wife that he had purchased a cottage in which he would be setting up his own nudist club. The high hedges and fences didn't conceal all that was going on inside and it was dubbed by locals as Kinky Cottage. To loss of what to do, Sheila attempted to distract Max from his plans by encouraging him to spend more time at the flying club. Her idea didn't have the positive outcome Sheila hoped for, as Max went flying after swallowing a dangerous combination of pro-plus caffeine pills washed down with a bottle of whiskey. Obviously, after taking this heady concoction, Max's flying was affected, and he was caught playing a game of chicken, flying his plane towards approaching traffic on a nearby road. 
he was arrested and a court date was set. Meanwhile, life at Carnbeg Farm carried on as usual. This was until Max met Brian Tevendale at a Scottish National Party meeting in the spring of 1967. The group of friends had been drinking and as Sheila made her way back to the car, Max, being rather drunk, decided to walk to a takeaway with a friend to get some fish and chips. Brian was sent to look after Sheila and the two started to get to know each other. Brian began to visit the farm on a more frequent basis and the 22-year-old started to develop a crush on the 32-year-old Sheila. As the young man was at the farm so often, he stayed in the spare room on weekends and even introduced the couple to his sister Trudy Burs. Max made no secret that he was attracted to Trudy and despite being married to a policeman in Aberdeen, Trudy would reciprocate Max's affection. The two went out flying alone together and in less than a week they had begun an affair. This arrangement wasn't hidden from Sheila or Brian and the four would go out to dinner together. Tongues started wagging. Not only was the affair obvious to Sheila but it was also obvious to onlookers as well. One night while the foursome were out having drinks, Max kept whispering to his wife, goading her to have sex with Brian. Trudy went home and Max, Sheila and Brian returned to the farm. Brian retired to the spare room while Sheila used the toilet before heading to the room she shared with her husband. Max was in a state of arousal and he was blocking the doorway. He hustled her into Brian's room and instructed her not to emerge until morning. Brian and Sheila had sex for the first time that evening and she crept back into a marital bed early the following day. Max was wide awake, excited about what had happened in the neighbouring room and wanted to have sex with his wife as soon as she got back into bed. Now Max knew that Sheila had been with Brian, he took great joy in telling Sheila about his sexual activities with Trudy. However, hearing about his exploits sickened Sheila and a huge divide was formed between the couple. To make matters more complex, she started drinking heavily and after weeks of living with the unconventional arrangement, she felt she could very well be falling in love with Brian. Max could see his wife had fallen for another man and was outraged. He confronted her. Sheila didn't deny it. Max was livid. He demanded she stop seeing Brian immediately before storming out of the house. In a vain attempt to reconcile a marriage, Sheila requested help from local reverend Kenneth Thomas who advised Max to cease his affair with Trudy and Sheila would do the same with Brian. Briefly, the couple reunited only to hit another bump in the road four months later. Max told his wife he wanted to rekindle his affair with Trudy. Sheila was beside herself and got in touch with Brian almost immediately, pleading for a second chance. She suggested they run away together. In February 1968, Sheila and Brian fled to Bradford in Yorkshire, leaving the children with their father, but it wasn't more than a week before Sheila snuck out and contacted Max. He agreed to collect her in his plane from Heathrow Airport. Despite returning to the farm, arguments at the family home hit an all-time high and Sheila interrupted a row by saying she had taken some tranquilizers. A doctor was called and when he arrived he found Sheila lying in bed and Max pacing up and down. The dose she had consumed was not lethal and the doctor informed Max that his wife should be able to sleep it off but strongly suggested Sheila get psychiatric help. 
Six weeks later, Sheila was seen in town talking to Brian. It was the first time they had seen each other since she had abandoned him in Bradford. They stood talking about the things that had happened since they saw each other last, and Sheila told him about the incident with the tranquilizers. Brian cautioned Sheila that many husbands dispose of their wives by getting them committed to mental hospitals, especially now she had attempted to take her own life. A month later on May 14th, Max attended a Scottish National Party meeting alone before returning home at 10.15pm. His children were all in bed and Sheila was alone watching TV. She claimed that when she woke up, her husband was gone. She reported her husband's disappearance to the police a week after he went missing. Sheila recounted the evening's events and said that nothing unusual had happened. Both Sheila and Brian were interviewed and Brian told police that he had rebuffed Max's sexual advances on several occasions. When a photo and description of Max was published in the Police Gazette, the accompanying note stated he was fond of female company but has strong homosexual tendencies. Max Garvey was declared a missing person, but as an adult who was free to come and go as he pleased, the police felt that looking for him wasn't a priority. People knew the Garveys had a troubled marriage. Rumours were abundant after the months of Max going to social events in town with Trudy and Sheila publicly showering affection on Brian. Maybe Max had left, or maybe he was taking a break from family life. Max missed his court date to answer to the charge of dangerous flying. His blue Cortina and plane remained untouched at the airfield. Suspicions were ignited when Sheila was seen with Brian at a number of social events, including a wedding of Brian's friend Alan Peters. They aroused the attention of police, who started to search fields and ditches surrounding the farmhouse, but became frustrated when their efforts bore no fruit. If anything had happened... Sheila Garvey and Brian Tevendale remained tight-lipped. The breakthrough came when Sheila's mother, Edith Watson, went to police after 97 days of keeping silent concerning what her daughter had told her the day after Max had disappeared. Her daughter hadn't divulged the whole truth to her mother. She was careful not to incriminate her lover, but Edith was aware Max was dead and it weighed heavily on her conscience. She decided to go to the police after a heated quarrel with her daughter. Edith disapproved of Sheila's relationship with Brian, who was the man she suspected was responsible for the death of her son-in-law. Sheila had called her mother, who was staying at the farm to babysit her grandchildren. Sheila was with Brian, who had recently found himself a new job as a barman. She told her mother Brian was coming back to the farmhouse to stay the night, Edith lost her temper, not wanting him to be around her grandchildren. On August 16, 1968, Sheila Garvey, Brian Tevendale and Brian's friend Alan Peters were arrested in connection with the disappearance of Max Garvey. In a statement to police, Brian claimed that he had been out drinking with Sheila and Max and then went back to the farm with them. He said Sheila and Max had gone upstairs and Max took a shotgun with him. Max had warned Sheila if she did not agree to have anal sex with him, he would shoot her. Struggle ensued and Sheila must have shot him. Brian said he wrapped Max's body in a canvas sheet and placed it in a blue Cortina owned by Max. Brian then drove the vehicle 
to Lauriston Castle where he placed Max's body in an underground tunnel covering him with rocks. He then explained he drove the car back to the airfield before hitching a ride home to Aberdeen. The next day Brian went to the farm with a new mattress and then helped dispose of the old one stained with Max's blood. On August 17, 1968, Maxwell Garvey's body was discovered by authorities. All three suspects were taken to Craig Inch's prison until the 10-day trial began on November 19, 1968. As with the Henry Burnett trial a few years before, crowds of people clambered to see the accused. The police had to employ a crush barrier as hundreds of onlookers had been waiting since dawn to try and get a seat in the courthouse. Sheila, then 34, lodged a defence alleging that the two men had killed her husband and she had no prior knowledge of their plans. Alan's defence was based on the fact that Sheila and Brian had carried out the killing. He was simply a fly drawn into a spider's web. Trudy Burst took to the stand and recounted all the details of the Garvey's complicated love life. Trudy explained that when she couldn't make it to the farmhouse, her brother Brian spent time alone with the Garvey's and he would toss a coin with Max to decide who slept with Sheila. Trudy stated, Max lost twice and insisted from then on they all go to bed together. She said Max told her that he encouraged the relationship between Sheila and Brian because Sheila was frigid and he believed the affair would make her a better lover. When Sheila took the stand, she explained that she and her husband had argued on the night in question, but coincidentally the garage door had been left open implying that anyone could have gained access to the home. She went to bed, the husband followed and they had sex. She went to sleep but claimed she was awoken in the early hours by someone tugging at her arm. At first she thought it was one of the children but then recognised the sound of Brian Tevendale's voice. Sheila went on to say, My husband was still in bed as I got up. Brian led me into the bathroom and told me to stay there. Sheila stated she had seen a fair-haired man, identified as Alan, outside the bedroom door. She added, In the bathroom I heard a door closing and assumed it was my bedroom door. Then I heard thumping noises. Minutes after Brian asked me to open the door, he said, He won't worry you anymore. I knew something dreadful had happened. Outside of the children's room, Sheila was on her knees when she heard something being dragged from the bedroom. Sheila, Brian and Alan went downstairs to the sitting room. Sheila claimed she asked Brian how he thought he was going to get away with what he had done. Brian and Alan's recollection of the night varied considerably to Sheila's. Alan claimed Sheila let him and Brian into the farmhouse while Max slept. Alan had no idea the visit would lead to murder until Brian began loading a shotgun in front of him. He claimed he was too frightened not to cooperate. Brian shifted the blame to Sheila and said the murder was her idea and he had gone along with it out of infatuation. In a rare move, the pathologist brought Max Garvey's skull into the courtroom in a box as a shocking piece of evidence. When it was shown, Sheila went pale and turned away. The pathologist used his finger to indicate where the lethal bullet had entered into the right side of Max's skull. Also during the trial, an insurance salesman testified that Sheila was due to receive more than £55,000 in life insurance if her husband died, along with their three family cars, their luxury home and income from the farm. 
the jury was unanimous in finding Brian Tevendale guilty of murder and the majority convicted Sheila Garvey. In Scottish law, majority rules, so both received life sentences. The jury found the case against Alan Peters not proven and he was acquitted. Brian and Sheila managed to quickly kiss before being led away. During the trial, the Garvey's three children stayed in a hotel in Creef. Their grandmother made sure they were all shielded from the newspapers and any talk of the highly publicised trial. Three months after the trial, Sheila wrote to Brian from her cell in Gateside Prison, I've decided to have nothing more to do with you ever again. Serving his sentence just 80 miles away in Perth Prison, Brian was told never to write and to destroy all of their old letters. Sheila's lawyer informed reporters she had decided the affair was more folly than love. When speaking to the press, Brian recalled his emotions when he received her letter. I felt a great sense of loss. I think she did it because they wouldn't let her see her kids. So where are we now? 50 years later in 2014... Craig Inch's prison was to be sold off so plans could be put through to use the site for affordable housing for Scotland's public sector workers. The plans to continue the building work had to be delayed as they couldn't find Henry Burnett's body. It took months to find Henry's remains on the grounds before they could continue and a small service was held for him at Aberdeen Crematorium on August 7th, 2014. Both Sheila Garvey and Brian Tevendale were released in 1978. The fallout of losing both their parents, one through murder and one through incarceration, significantly affected the three Garvey children. They went to live with their grandmother, but sadly, a year after the trial, she passed away. The children lived in numerous foster homes. Wendy, the eldest of the Garvey children, looked back at the reunion with her mother in 1979 and said her mother Sheila didn't want to talk about what had happened. She'd just rather go to the pub. Wendy still struggles to come to terms with what happened in her childhood and has little contact with her siblings. Angela moved to Oxfordshire and the youngest Lloyd, a builder by trade, took on and transformed the family's farmhouse. The five-bedroom house was put up for sale in 2014 with offers starting at £795,000 but the property didn't sell. Brian Tevendale left prison and became a landlord in a pub in the Perthshire Hills. He spoke to the Daily Record in the late 90s and explained how he lived with the guilt for three decades. He stated, If I could go back and undo it now, I would. But when I did what I did, I was stupid and naive and probably thought I was in love. Nothing eases your conscience. He recalled his friendship with Max Garvey. We used to go flying and drinking together. He was a very charismatic guy. Then he started drinking and popping pills and he went all to hell. He had it all and started to look for more excitement. Brian Tevendale died of a heart attack in 2003 at age 58. He passed away just days before he planned to emigrate to Gambia in Africa. After her release from jail, Sheila Garvey went on to run her aunt's guest house in Aberdeen and married an oil worker, David McLennan, who was 13 years her junior. Their relationship was short-lived, 
David was fined a hundred pounds for shouting and pounding on the door of the guest house, terrifying Sheila and the other occupants. In 1981, the divorce was finalised and Sheila reportedly told a newspaper, my marriage turned out to be a nightmare. In the circumstances, I just didn't know any better. In December of that year, she married her third husband, drilling engineer Charles Mitchell, with whom she lived happily in Stonehaven until his death in 1992. Sheila moved to a retirement community in 2015. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. A podcast recommendation for this week is Pleasing Terrors. Join acclaimed ghost storyteller Mike Brown for a bi-weekly tour through the shadows of history. The Pleasing Terrors podcast features stories about haunted places, creepy history and forgotten folklore. Please stick around for a trailer at the end of this episode. If you would like to support They Walk Among Us and receive ad-free content and other extras, please go to patreon.com forward slash they walk among us. You can follow us on Twitter at TWAU underscore podcast or follow us on Instagram and Facebook under They Walk Among Us podcast. Some stories were never supposed to be told. Stories that exist in the twilight between science and the supernatural, between history and horror. Stories that speak of terrifying things. Stories that you want to hear. Stories that you need to hear. Stories that will sink their teeth in and never let you go. My name is Mike Brown. Join me on a journey through the shadows of history. The Pleasing Terrors podcast weaves true stories of history and true crime with folklore and the paranormal. But be warned, there are no sweet dreams here, only nightmares. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.